0: Well, as Robert mentioned, uh, this is my last official tour as uh, diocesan bishop uh, and my last chance to be with you all in that role, although somebody said to me in another congregation recently, said, well, once you're retired, you can come here every Sunday. (laughs) So who knows where I'll be next? I'll put it that way. I do want to say how grateful I am for this church, for your support, for your leadership, your clergy. Uh, you have been a catalytic in many things that are uh, a deep reality now for us as a diocese, uh, not the least of which is that you helped plant a church uh, over on the Panhandle, and, um, and the rector of that church is now one of the candidates for bishop. Uh, and that was because you adopted them as they started off, and, and, and his ministry has proved to be very uh, fruitful there. But that's just one example. Many ordinations, other lay leaders raised up, involvement with so many ministries, I could go on and on. Robert was the first dean, for example, uh, of uh, this part of uh, the Gulf Atlantic Diocese. Um, and, and did a marvelous job of getting that pulled together. And, of course, Mark is on my staff and has to put up with me on a regular basis. Uh, but he's made huge contributions in preparing people for ordained ministry. So I could go on and on. But it's a joy to be here. It's weird to be on a last tour. Not quite like the Rolling Stones, I guess, but I just, uh, it's just a weird feeling. Uh, we don't do very well with last things, you know, most of our lives, I've noticed you didn't know the last time you were going to see someone or the last time you would be able to pick up that grandchild before they just got too big to carry. We don't, we don't notice last times. I happen to be noticing a last time this time around. It's a, a joy to be with you. The focus, of course, in Easter season is the resurrection of Jesus. And we begin most of our services with, Alleluia, Christ is risen, the Lord is risen indeed, alleluia. We didn't today because we're in confirmation, but that's still very much the banner we're flying under. The resurrection of Jesus, the raising of Jesus from the dead, is, I would argue, the greatest event that changed history. Now look, the birth of Jesus and the cross of Jesus were foundational events, no question. But if Jesus had not been raised they would be meaningless. The resurrection of Jesus verified the identity of Jesus as Savior and Lord. It proved that his claims about his relationship as the divine Son of God the Father were true. It validated that his sacrifice on the cross was sufficient payment for our sins and the sins of the whole world, past, present, and future. Just stop there for one second. Jesus knows all the sins you're going to commit. Did you realize that? It's very clear in Psalm 139. He knows what we're going to say. He knows what's going to happen next. So when he paid for your sins, he was paying ahead. And when he saved you, he's never been surprised by your sin. You could live in that for a while. That helps me. Two key themes this morning. The resurrection was a historical fact. Number one, but number two, knowing that is not enough. We have to take it personally. What do I mean by that? We'll get there. First, the fact of the resurrection. It's not a scientific fact. Historical events cannot be repeated like scientific experiments can be. Historical facts are based on eyewitness reports and generally written records. And of course now we have all sorts of video records as well. One sign that the resurrection took place was the the fact that the records we have make it clear that when Jesus died, not one of his followers was expecting the resurrection despite the fact that he had predicted it over and over again. I mean, if they'd been expecting it. I think they would have spent two nights as near the tomb as they could. I mean, you wouldn't want to miss a resurrection, right? But no, they're nowhere near it. The resurrection is at the very heart of the gospel of Jesus. And the evidence is based on hundreds of eyewitnesses, strong historical evidence for the resurrection, including the remarkable change that took place in the apostles from those who had doubted into those who died proclaiming the death and resurrection of Jesus. We see an example of that in the reading about Saul this morning. Uh, Saul persecuting the church, encountering the risen Jesus, radically changed. One footnote, and you've probably heard this before, he's Saul here, he's Paul elsewhere. His name was not changed by Jesus. I want to be clear about that. That's what I often taught and it was often taught. It's not the same as what happens with other people in the scripture where Jesus does change your name or, the, or God earlier in the Old Testament changes her name. Saul is his Hebrew name, Paul is his Gentile name. It's more a question of where he is. I have a friend who's a priest. He's George to his English speaking congregation and Jorge to his Spanish speaking congregation. That's what's going on there, but just a footnote. But Paul or Saul has this radical experience, and he's a new man. But as I said, you can believe in these things as historical facts, but that is not enough. You have to take it personally. My wife, Marcia, when she teaches, uh, often will stop in the midst of what she's saying and looking at a promise of scripture or looking at a story in scripture, and she says, take it personally. What does that mean? Now, often we say things when something, uh, we've said something to somebody and they have a negative reaction, we'll say, don't take it personally. But I want to look at a positive way of thinking of taking something personally. And let me share an example of something that happened to me years ago that give you an idea of what I mean. I was flying from Jacksonville, my home, to uh, London by way of New York. But somehow or another, the flight that I was on uh, heading to New York had to be diverted to Atlanta. I don't remember the details. I, I try to repress those kind of experiences as much as possible. <laughs> so we're in Atlanta. I need to get to London. I go to the, uh, a flight desk, uh, airline desk, and say, I, I've got to get to London. What can we do? Well, we've got one plane leaving in about 35, 40 minutes. But I think it's full. I, I don't think it'll work. But head over to the desk. This is before everything was radically connected by computer. And I get there, and I get signed in as a possible standby. But in those days, they didn't have the screen like they have now of all the lists of the standbys, and you can kind of see if it's going to work or not. I had no idea. But I just sat there, and she called name after name of the standbys after the other passengers had gotten on. She wasn't calling my name. She wasn't calling my name. And finally, she stopped calling names. And I'm thinking, wow. What am I going to do now? So I stuck around for a minute or two, thinking this isn't going to work. And then she called my name. And I got on the plane. I was the last passenger to board. I saw it as a real answer to prayer. Now, if that experience had been written out in a news article, and for some reason they wanted to list everybody on the plane in in the order that they got on the plane, the last three words of that list would be and Neil Labar. I was so glad to be there. I I couldn't believe it. I mean, I believed the facts. I knew there was a plane. I saw it out the window. I knew it was taking passengers, because I watched them all get on board. I knew they were going to London. But I couldn't take it personally until the invitation to fly was given to me. And boy, I did take it personally. I practically skipped down the aisle, (laughs) pinching myself along the way. Taking it personally is to act on the basis of the evidence, and in this case, the evidence was her calling my name. I want to focus this morning on one particular eyewitness who took the resurrection personally. On resurrection morning, an angel in Mark's gospel tells the women at the tomb this incredible news and then gives them a commission. Mark 16:6, 6, he said to them, "Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified." He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There are two words in Mark's account that are missing in the other three gospels. The two additional words, and Peter. Tell the disciples and Peter. Now we know from some historical records that the, the tradition at least is that Mark's gospel was based on the preaching of Peter. So my guess is, and it's only a guess, but the strong guess is that Mark knew about these words. And Peter made, made it clear it was important to Peter that that be mentioned. But why does Jesus say this through an angel, his messenger? Because at this point of the story, Peter would no longer have considered himself a disciple. If it had just been, go tell the disciples, Peter would say, well, I'm out. Because in the time uh, that Jesus was was doing ministry, uh, if you had a rabbi, the worst thing you could do was to deny your rabbi and walk away from him. Some considered it worse than murder. And Peter had done it three times in a matter of minutes as Jesus was being tried. So Peter would have counted himself out, no longer a disciple, if it hadn't been for this invitation. Sort of like I was going through. From my perspective, when I was waiting, my name wasn't called, I had written myself off of being a part of that plane. If he hadn't been specifically invited, I wonder if Peter would have shown up at any of the meetings that Jesus had with the other disciples. Well, today we see a follow-up story, the appearance of Jesus by the Sea of Galilee. He already appeared to the disciples on the eve after the resurrection. Then he appeared again a week later, um, and that's when Thomas sees him and believes. Now they're up in Galilee, and there's a fishing miracle. It's a repeat of a miracle that led to the call for Peter and Andrew, James, and John to be followers in the first place a multiplication of fish, or pointing them to the right place for fish. It's interesting that Thomas, having been the doubter, well, they had all been doubters, uh, is there as well. So they've had a night of fishing with no results, just like in the early story at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And Jesus on the shore said to them, cast the net on on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. And John immediately makes the connection. We might say it's a moment of déjà vu for him. He remembers the earlier great catch, the call that followed it to be a fisher of men and women. And it says that disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, having seen this miracle, said to Peter, "It is the Lord." When Simon Peter heard this, heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. He wants to get to Jesus. The story that comes right after this is often called the reconciliation of Peter. This whole uh, set of experiences of meeting with, with Jesus for Peter is a restart. I don't know, have you ever had a computer crash? I hope it never happens to you. But there is that moment when it crashes where you sort of see your life flashing in front of your eyes. And you wonder if you're ever going ever gonna to get that material back again. I had a friend who lost his PhD dissertation. I know, he should have backed it up. He always said that when he told the story. Peter had crashed. But now there are moments to be reconciled, for things to restart. He's been with him with the disciples twice in Jerusalem, now a third time by the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee, same thing. Jesus is helping him restart. One of the things we miss in the story is that Jesus cooks breakfast for them. A meal in the time of Jesus was a sign of fellowship. You're part of my family if we're having a meal together. So it's not incidental that Jesus creates a meal with his disciples to show that, that uh, they're a part of the family. And Peter gets a chance to recommit. It's interesting, I won't go into the whole story, you, you may be looking at it uh, soon, but when Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me, he starts by, out by saying, Simon, son of John. Why is that important? That's the way Jesus had addressed him at the beginning of the gospel when things were just starting. Simon, son of John, he says it three times. It's as if to say, we're going back to the beginning, we're gonna give you another chance, it's a restart. Do you love me? And Peter says, yes, you know I love you in various ways. Three denials to be replaced by three affirmations. What a gracious way to restart someone who feels on the outs. Peter took the invitation to follow Jesus again personally. It was the risen Lord Jesus who opened the way for Peter to be a disciple again. And Peter gets changed from a hopeless failure to a proclaimer of hope. He's the first preacher, as we see the day of Pentecost later on, preaching to crowds. In 1 Peter, Peter writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us... Stop there for a minute. In other words, he has caused you and me to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter knew God's mercy. He recognized the living hope that he'd been born into, all because Jesus had been raised. Note that it starts out with praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's praising God for the resurrection of the Son. God the Father for the resurrection of the Son, and we're to be holding on to the same living hope of having eternal life, life that we will inherit completely when we die, a life that death cannot destroy. Do we really believe this? Do you really believe this? Do you really believe in the resurrection? I have to ask myself that question from time to time. I'll say more about that in a moment. Do we praise God the Father? These are test questions if we really believe it. Do we praise God the Father for raising Jesus? Do we remember that Jesus is alive right now, right here? And do you take his promise of life after death personally? People can live their whole lives in fear of death. Are you one of them? But if we have faith in Jesus, we have nothing to fear because he conquered death and he showed that by his resurrection. I like these words from Hebrews chapter two. I'm gonna read from a uh, sort of translation slash commentary uh, by Eugene Peterson called The Message. Peterson puts it this way, since the children are made of flesh and blood, it's logical that the Savior took on flesh and blood in order to rescue them by his death. By embracing death, taking it into himself, He destroyed the devil's hold on death and freed all who cower through life, scared to death of death. Isn't that an amazing phrase? Scared to death of death. To take the resurrection personally is not to be scared to death of death. Now let me be clear, we have a survival instinct. Trepidation about dying is normal. This is deeper, this is fear. This is fear that paralyzes us and affects our behaviors and attitudes. It was being scared to death of death that led to Peter's denial. We can live in hope if we take the resurrection personally. Heaven is more real than life here. Some of you know the name C.S. Lewis, author of the Narnia stories and lots of other things. He called life here the Shadowlands compared to the reality of heaven. Some of you know the name Amy Grant, a famous Christian singer who knew both huge success and then very public failure. She recorded an album in her later years of uh, recording just a few years ago now. And she wrote all the songs full of hope and trust in the Lord. But then she sang this one song that somebody else had written, a guy named Eric Hasley. Pasley. Eric Pasley. Listen to this description of heaven in his words, this this hope that we have. He said, Every nation, color, and creed, like grace pouring out as far as the eye can see singing praises up to the king because he died for a crowd as deep as it is wide. And then these last lines caught my attention. Every breath taking me closer, every step leading to paradise. That's a description of the Christian life. We have that level of hope. Do we walk in that hope? There's an ancient Christian hymn that has this phrase in it. We have a version of it in the prayer book that always catches my attention. It says, worthy it is at all times to praise thee in joyful voice. And I look at my life and I think, and others say happy voices, but I think joyful is closer to the meaning. The Lord has done great things for us. Are we Joyful people, are we going through a life with a sense of promise ahead? The ones being received and confirmed uh, are receiving catechisms if they already don't have one. And this, th- this particular question and answer, and I recommend you all get one uh, because I think it lives, it's not just dry stuff. But listen to this answer How should you live in light of this promise of an unending life? And the response is, I should live in joyful expectation of the fullness of my transformation, soul and body, into the likeness of Christ. In the midst of suffering or in the face of hostility and persecution, I am sustained by the hope of a new heaven and earth, freed from Satan, evil, suffering, and death. Now, you look at a situation of injustice We can look at Ukraine. We can look at uh, lots of situations of injustice in our own country. But there will be a day when the judge of all things makes all things right. We believe in a God of ultimate justice as well as of mercy. We should be those promoting justice now because we're looking to head to a perfectly just new heaven and new earth. you see the world and act, see the world and then act differently because you believe Jesus was raised and that these things are true? The list of Jesus' followers has your name on it if you've taken Jesus and the gospel personally. Remember, and Peter, or in my case, and Neil. Well, also and you. those being confirmed to receive, you're taking it personally today by declaring your faith in the risen Lord Jesus. Now, there may be somebody here who's counted themselves out, that you feel like you failed the Lord to such a degree that you can't imagine he would ever accept you back. That the resurrection is not only a historical fact, but included in that fact is the experience of Peter, who counted himself out and was restored If Jesus can do that with Peter, he can do that with anyone. I'm going to give one closing challenge. I shared with the kids uh, during the uh, the students yesterday when we were um, preparing for confirmation today, about my testimony. And I've been taught uh, by the woman who's sharing the gospel with me and I was interested in it, along with her husband who both sharing it. She suggested this prayer, Jesus if you're real, or actually God if you're real, show yourself to me and I will follow you. I was trying to sort it out. And her point was, God doesn't just show off. If adjust, the prayer is not, God if you're real, show yourself to me. As if I can sit and decide, okay, well that was nice. The Lord's agenda is make disciples who follow. And sometimes I think people are looking for God, but they really don't want him to show up. C.S. Lewis called himself the most reluctant convert in all of England when the Lord caught up with him. But when I have doubts, I don't think back to my encounter with the Lord as real as it was, because I can always find a way to question it. I work back to considering the case for the resurrection, and I find most of the other uh, non-biblical explanations totally insufficient. They just don't match the facts. So here's the challenge. Do you know the case for the resurrection? If somebody said, well, how do you know it was true? What would you tell them? You'd say it is a case built on the testimonies of faithful eyewitnesses who are radically changed. Jesus said to Thomas in John 20, "'Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed.'" In other words, us. And we're blessed if we believe the eyewitness accounts. Peter echoes this, "'Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you now do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls.'" Do you know the case for the Resurrection? Do you go back to it when you're doubting, which we all do from time to time? Lots of good books about it, Uh, uh, clergy and others can recommend them. One I'm recommending now is called Hope in Times of Fear by Tim Keller, the the subtitle is The Resurrection and the Meaning of Easter. We need hope in this time, we're surrounded by people in fear and we fear ourselves in this moment where everything seems to be falling apart? Do you get the resurrection? Check your heart. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is risen, that your sins, your sins are forgiven? That because Jesus is risen, you have eternal life. Because Jesus is risen, he is Lord of all. And these truths can be embedded in your hearts and in your understanding. John says in his gospel, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Real life, the life God intended for you. Jesus is risen. Take it personally, for real life depends on it. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, I pray for people in different places here today. Some who have believed and are joyful in that faith, others who have believed but are struggling, others who have not yet believed but are wondering. I pray you would speak into each heart to encourage, to direct, to uphold, to bring joy and hope. That they may be disciples who worship you with happy, joyful voices.